are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. Okay, everybody, I'm going to assume that we're on now. Thank you so much for joining us. My name is David Guzik. So pleased that you could join me here on a Thursday afternoon, or at least it's afternoon on the West Coast of the United States. That's where this is coming to you from. Uh, As you can tell right off, uh, my voice isn't quite right. Last week, when I was away at Forest Home, being the evening speaker for a family camp, my voice wasn't quite right either. Um, It's improving. This is a week later. Uh, but my voice is getting okay. I'm happy with how things are going. But man, uh, it's sort of been a long road with this thing with my voice. But I was able to preach last Sunday. I was able to preach last night. Uh, I think I'm up for doing the Q&A today. And so let's get on with this. Now today, on a Q&A, we usually do what I call uh, a lead question. We take some question that's come in via email, maybe something that's come in uh, by social media, maybe a leftover question from a Q&A that we couldn't quite get to before, and we deal with it. Uh, but today is what we call it, ask me anything. And that just means I'm not going to do a lead question. We're going to get to more of your questions in the live chat and begin with it right away. You write the questions in the live chat, our moderator forwards them to me. And we'll get started off right away with this one from WBL, who says, The modern interpretation of the meaning of the second half of Matthew 16, 18 confuses me. Gates are defensive structures. Isn't the church the one doing the attacking against hell? Okay, uh, Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. Uh, I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. WL, great question. Okay, let, let me uh, give a few thoughts here. First of all, Jesus delivered these words at a place called Caesarea Philippi, which was a curious place for him to go because it was a very pagan city. Many Israel tours take tours to Caesarea Philippi, and when they go to Caesarea Philippi, they see the place where a pagan temple to the god Pan stood, And it was built out of a cave that was there. And in sacrificial practices at that pagan temple, they would drop the carcasses of sacrificed animals down a crevasse. And they titled that place the Gates of Hell because it just went down a a crevice or crevasse that would go down to some uncertain place, you know, some place they couldn't see. So there was that imagery there. But even more so, WBL, I think this. Jesus isn't so much speaking of the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it as if the Christian church is going to storm Hades. More so, the gates of a city were the place where its leadership met, where its strategy was plotted, where plans were made. I think this is a way of Jesus saying that the strategies, the plans, the uh, the, the ideas of, of hell, of Hades will not succeed against the church. It's not so much that, uh, you know, there's an army marching against the church, although metaphorically you could certainly say that's true. And it's not so much that the church is storming the gates of hell, although again, metaphorically you could say true. But there are real, I'm not talking about metaphorical, I mean real demonic 
intelligences, beings, strategies, plans that are uh, planned and enacted against the church. And what Jesus' promise is, is that those strategies, those plans will come to nothing. They will not succeed against the church. So really, um, the gates of an ancient city served as something like their town hall, uh, the place where the city council met, so to speak, where things for the city were planned and strategized. And I think that that's really the sense there, that the plans, that the strategies of Satan and his organized dominion will not succeed against the church. Debbie Bell, that's the best way I would answer that. Next question comes from Adonis, who asks, in light of the scriptures similar to Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 3 and 4, uh, did Esther sin by becoming queen? Deuteronomy 7, verse 3 and 4. Nor shall you make marriages with them. You shall not give your daughter to their son, nor take their daughter for your son, for they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. So the anger of the Lord will be aroused against you and destroy you suddenly. Uh, Adonis, I would excuse Esther from that command of intermarriage with the pagans in Deuteronomy chapter 7. And let me tell you why I would excuse, because there's no evidence that Esther had any choice in the matter. This was a recruitment of women all across the empire to come and please the king. And there's no indication uh, that she campaigned for the position that she won. I mean, maybe she did. We just don't know. But there's no evidence in the book of Esther itself that I can remember. I'm certainly not infallible that uh, Esther put herself forward for this situation. Uh, She could have been uh, forced into this arrangement. And of course, God had a purpose in it. God used it mightily, and and Esther glorified God in it. But there's no evidence uh, that I'm remembering, at least, in Esther, that this was the choice of Esther. And so I think we can excuse her from that command against intermarriage with pagans found in... uh, the book of Deuteronomy. We do remember as well that there were a few notable exceptions uh, to this, but um, for the most part, no, that was regarded as a um, as disobedience. Israel was not to marry into the pagan nations around them unless, and this is a big unless, unless those people converted to the worship of Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel. That door was always open to the pagan nations. Great. Thank you for that question there, Adonis. Next question comes from Chitao, who asks, can the devil speak to us in our minds to tempt us? Also, if he has access to a person's mind, does he know what a person is thinking? Chitao, I I would just say this. The devil, now, again, let's speak here kind of precisely. I'm probably not speaking to a single person here in my YouTube or podcast or whatever audience it is, I'm probably not speaking to a single person who has ever been directly tempted by or spoken to by Satan himself. Uh, Because Satan is not uh, omnipresent. He can't be everywhere at once. He's a singular being. He, He can give his attention to one thing at a time. He's not God, nor is he the opposite of God. However, we often speak in a justifiable, simplified way where we talk about the devil tempting us, the devil speaking to us. What we mean by that is the devil and his agents. 
because there are many demonic spirits in league with Satan, no doubt part of the one-third of the angels or stars of heaven that fell with Satan, as described in Revelation chapter 12. So, uh, we have been tempted, uh, we, we have been communicated to by demonic spirits, and that's the real point I, I want to get at. They, they have some way of communicating to us. How? I don't know. A thought? A suggestion? I don't think I've ever heard an audible voice like that, but we, we all know what it's like to have a thought or a suggestion along those lines. So, there's some way that demonic spirits can suggest something. We don't know how that exactly works, but we just know that it does work. Now, you ask about having access to a person's mind. Does he know what a person is thinking? I, I, I wish the Bible spoke with greater clarity on that, Chitao. But let me give you my understanding of this. Simply, um, no, the devil cannot, or his agents, the devil or his agents, cannot read my mind literally, but they can practically. I, I heard one uh, conference speaker say it like this. He said, uh, if my wife can know what I'm thinking, the devil can as well. In other words, my wife doesn't need supernatural knowledge or the ability to read my mind in a literal sense to know what I'm thinking. She just knows me so well that she can predict, she knows, she can say. And we are under constant observation by demonic spirits. Because we are on under constant observation by demonic spirits, they are very good predictors. Not perfect, not infallible, but they're very good predictors of what we would think what we would say, what we would do. And so, uh, on a practical level, I would say, yes, there's a very real sense in which the devil and demonic spirits can read my mind, but I don't think it's possible to them in a literal sense to actually know what we're thinking. I, I hope that's helpful for you, Chital. Thank you very much. Uh, next question comes from Molly. Uh, Rio asked the same question, apparently. I would like to know your opinion on speaking in tongues. Was it clearly for the apostles at that time, or can we ask for it now? Well, Molly and Rio, I want you to know, I always like to say straight off that this is a doctrinal issue where there is debate among believers. There are people who take the Bible seriously who come to differing conclusions on this matter. And I, I want to speak that way, just acknowledging and being respectful of my brothers and sisters in Christ who have a different opinion than I do. But I don't mind telling you at all what my understanding, what my perspective of this. Uh, Molly and Rio, I would say, yes, absolutely, I believe that the gift of tongues is for today. Now, I don't believe, and again, I, I have a biblical basis for saying this. I don't believe that the purpose of the gift of tongues is to speak to other people in their language. Paul says very plainly in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, he who speaks in an unknown tongue speaks not to men, but to God. When a person speaks in an unknown tongue, they're speaking to God. The gift of tongues is a gift of communication in a real language. In a real human language, I know there's the potential that it could be angelic languages. Uh, Paul mentions that in 1 Corinthians 13. Whatever. Maybe, maybe not. You can leave that aside. I wouldn't have a problem somebody saying, 
that uh, tongues are real languages, but they're for the purpose of communicating with God and not with men. Paul says this, again, very plainly. It's so plain that it's curious how some people try to deny it. 1 Corinthians 14, he who speaks in an unknown tongue speaks not unto men, but unto God. And what the people heard on Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, when the disciples had this unique phenomenon of a... um, of a tongue of fire appearing over each one's head, something never again replicated in the Bible. But then they also had a phenomenon that was replicated throughout the book of Acts, and we know throughout the early church, this phenomenon of speaking in tongues, praying in tongues, whatever you would say. And it says the the listeners to that, from the crowd from many different nations there at, at the Feast of Pentecost, they said, We hear them declaring the wonderful works of God. They were praising God in their unknown tongues. When it came time to speak to the crowd, Peter spoke to everybody in the common language that everybody knew, Koine Greek. And and so, tongues was not necessary on Pentecost to preach to a linguistically diverse crowd. They all knew the same language, and Peter preached to them in it. No, the gift of tongues was the spontaneous outburst of people praising God because, as 1 Corinthians 14 says, he who speaks in an unknown tongue speaks not unto men, but unto God. Now, uh, I don't see any evidence in uh, either church history or, more importantly, in the Bible that God no longer gives this gift. And and this is what I often say to people about the gift of tongues. Uh, For example, I'll pray for people and they'll say, David, would you pray for me? Um, I, I want to receive the gift of tongues. This is what I always ask them. I say this, why do you want the gift of tongues? Because there's a lot of people who desire the gift of tongues to prove something. They want to prove to themselves. They want to prove to other people. They want to prove to the pastor or the evangelist that they really are spirit filled. Friends, that's not why God gives the gift of tongues. And so I talk it through with people. I, I, I discourage them from seeking the gift of tongues to prove something or to get a thrill or to have an experience. This is what I ask them. I say this. Do you ever feel limited in your ability to speak with God, to praise him, to thank him, to intercede for others beyond them, to pour out your heart before him? Do you ever feel limited in that ability as if there's more in your heart than you can vocalize with your words? And if a person says to me in response, no, I never really feel like that, I say, fine. When you do feel like that, come back to me and we'll pray for the gift of tongues for you. But then I've had other people say, yes, I feel like that all the time. Then I say, let's pray and believe God that he'll give you this gift. So uh, that's how I approach it. I think that there's been a lot of damage done in God's family by encouraging people to fake the gift of tongues or to seek the gift of tongues to prove to other people that they have the Holy Spirit, that they are baptized in the Holy Spirit, that they have some standing or some experience. I think all of that should be put away and we should understand the purpose of the gift of tongues as explained in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Molly. That's a long answer. I hope it's helpful to you. Next question comes from Now I Know, who asks, 
Hi, sir. Is there a difference in the importance of crucifixion and resurrection? Now I know I'm just going to say off the top of my head, no, there is no difference because one is only valid with the other. If you had a crucifixion and no resurrection, what good is that? We would never know if the price would be paid. We would know that Jesus Christ did not triumph over death. We would know that Jesus was a liar because he said that he would be raised from the dead. No, no, no. A crucifixion without the resurrection is no good. But how can you have a resurrection without a sin-atoning crucifixion? So I'm going to say there is no difference in their importance. They both go together. Uh, It's fascinating to see in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, of course, in the Gospels as well, in the Gospels, in the book of Acts, and in the New Testament letters, the import, even in the book of Revelation, the importance placed on both the crucifixion of Jesus the Messiah and his glorious resurrection. Both of them are essential historical truths understood in the light of Scripture. So thank you for that question there. Now I know. Flora asks a question. Which Bible translation would you recommend? I have a Schofield study Bible, and I'm looking to buy another Bible just to be able to cross-reference various texts. Well, um, Flora, um, the Bible translation that I use, that all of my commentary uses, because by the way, uh, I have a verse-by-verse commentary throughout the entire Bible Uh, It's more than 4.4 million words. It's absolutely available free online. We don't even have paid ads on our website. Friends, I, I, God forbid that I'd be here boasting, but I'll just say this. We get a lot of traffic and we could make some money by hosting ads, but we want it to be a great user experience and we don't have any paid ads on our website. Now, with that Bible commentary uh, that is really uh, the product of my work over almost the last 40 years, that Bible commentary uses the New King James Version. So that's um, the version I use. It's the translation I recommend. Now, you say you have a Schofield reference Bible. Um, The only Schofield Bibles I'm familiar with are uh, King James Version. So maybe you want to try a New King James Version uh, that's a King James Version with some modifications, but I, I, I think it's a great translation. It's the one that I use the most. The ESV is very close to the New King James. Matter of fact, to be honest, for me, it's so close that I don't see any reason to change. Uh, if somebody wants a contemporary, a easy language Bible to use that, that they will find helpful, I would recommend that they use the New Living Translation. I think that's a good Bible translation, and maybe someday I'll teach, maybe here on the YouTube channel, I'll teach verse by verse through a book of the Bible using the New Living Translation. So, um, those are some of my ideas, Flora, about which Bible translations are good. Um, Do not use the Passion Translation. Do not recommend that at all. Uh, My friend Mike Winger has some great material on that. The Message by Eugene Peterson, which I have around here somewhere, Um, The message, look, read it if you want to, but just understand it's more of a commentary 
than it is a, a translation. And if you just read it with that in mind, well, then fine. Um, this is Eugene Peterson's take on the Bible, and sometimes he nails it, sometimes maybe not, um, but that's kind of the idea there. I hope that's helpful for you there, Flora, and I see you have a second question here. Um, what's the difference between a trial and a test in the Bible, or are they mostly the same? Flora, I want you to know there's no difference whatsoever, except, of course, if we're talking on the, the occasions when Jesus was on trial before the Sanhedrin, when Paul was on trial before King Festus. But just in general sense, a trial and a test, it refers to exactly the same thing. All right, folks, uh, so glad you could join us here. Um, God willing, and if I live, next Thursday, the Q&A is going to come to you live from Sweden. Uh, I'll be there for a conference and to visit family. Really looking forward to it. Hopefully my voice will be all cleared up by then. Uh, so next Thursday, hopefully live from Sweden. We're going to hope that all works out. Uh, but that'll be next Thursday. Today, we're here. This is an Ask Me Anything. I didn't take any lead question. Getting right to your questions. And already I've answered... Let me see if I can count. Oh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven questions already. Well, that's good, I guess. I don't know. We don't do a set number of questions, but we just do it for about an hour. And, you know, I've been thinking <clears throat> when I have time, uh, I'm going to extend it out and do like an hour and a half program. But I'm not going to do that today. Today, we're going to keep it at about an hour because if you can hear, my voice isn't top notch. And uh, it's probably not smart for me to be testing my voice too much. Uh, next question comes from Lucho, who asks, Good evening from Florida. Uh, were there salvation for the enemies of Israel, such as the Philistines, Amorites, and Jebusites? Okay, Lucho, um, I, I would give you a perhaps. Look, we find these unusual situations among some of the pagan peoples. Uh Rahab was an example. Rahab was someone who saw what the God of Israel was doing, knew that the God of Israel was the true God, and she put her trust in the God of Israel. And so, uh, there may have been pagans who did that. Just because a nation is judged, and ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, God in heaven has the right to judge nations. Just because a nation is judged doesn't mean that every individual in that nation who suffers under that judgment is necessarily going to hell. Uh, that just depends on that individual's relationship with God and whether or not they put their saving trust in God or not. Uh, and so you, you have these anomalies, you have these uh, unusual situations where there are people uh, in the Old Testament, Jethro, Melchizedek, Rahab, as I noted. Ruth isn't such a strange example because she had a, a Hebrew influence through her uh, husband's, her deceased husband's family. Uh, but still, she was a Gentile who came to faith. There were Gentiles in surrounding nations who came to faith in the God of Israel. And God always wanted to make the door open to them if they were to come and submit to him. So uh, they had to reject their pagan gods. They had to put their hope in the God of Israel and the Messiah that he promised to bring, and they could find salvation 
even if their nation itself was under judgment. Um, I, I just like to tell people, look, getting to heaven or going to hell is not primarily a matter of what group you belong to. Oh, oh, you belong to the good group. Oh, you're going to heaven. Ooh, ooh, you belong to the bad group. You're going to hell. No, no, no. It's an individual thing between people. And there are people who are among genuine Christians, but they're going to go to hell because they never had a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. They, they never received that righteousness that comes by faith in the Son of God. And there are godly people among the bad groups, at least from time to time, and they're going to go to heaven. Why? Because they were among the bad group? No, no, not at all. But because they had that personal righteousness that comes uh, by faith in God's Messiah and in the price he paid for us. So I hope that helps you there, um, Lucho. Going to the next question from Gabriel. Um, what is the difference between oneness, Pentecostalism, and the Trinity? Well, Gabriel, as I understand the teachings of oneness, Pentecostalism, uh, that their understanding of the nature of God is sometimes called modalism. Uh, a more ancient understanding of, I'm remembering my terms correctly, which I don't always do, Sabellianism. Uh, and basically, this believes that the Orthodox, and when I say Orthodox, I mean broadly Orthodox, not just the Eastern churches, but the Orthodox understanding of the Trinity that's been common to Protestants, Roman Catholics, uh, the Eastern churches, the Orthodox communions, that understanding of God as a Trinity, one God, don't forget that part about the Trinity, there's one God in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Uh, oneness Pentecostals, modalist, Sabellianism, it rejects that formulation. And they say, no, God instead appears in modes. He was <clears throat> God the Father. Then he was God the Son. Then he was God the Holy Spirit. Or now he is God the Holy Spirit. And so they would not say that there's three persons to the Godhead which coexist eternally and have relationship one with another. But uh, the one God has simply existed in three phases or modes, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Well, I think that there's a lot of scripture that contradicts that idea. If nothing else, and I mean, this is just one aspect of it, but the passages of Jesus where he prays and interacts with his God and Father, or at the baptism of Jesus, where you have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all present at the same account. So, I think that there's a lot in the Bible that argues against this oneness view. Um, I, I think it's a mistake. It's an error to believe about the nature of God. Um, that's from Gabriel. Now, Fernando asks a question. In Matthew chapter 24, verses 30 and 31, is that a rapture as mentioned in Revelation? Or are the events of Revelation something else? Okay, Fernando, I think you're not talking about the rapture, so to speak, but you're talking about the uh, book of 1 Thessalonians, where it speaks about the catching away of the church. I think that's what you're referring to. But the passage in Matthew that you're quoting, where it says this, um, 
Matthew chapter 24, verses 30 and 31. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with great power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a great sound of trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from the one end of the heaven to the other. Uh, Fernando, I'll just give you my understanding of this. Again, there are Christians who take the Bible seriously, who see this in different terms, but you're asking me the question, and so I'm going to give you my answer. I'm not going to give you the answer from one of my um, post uh millennial uh, brothers or amillennial or one of my uh, post-tribulational uh, brothers. is I'm going to give you the un- uh, understanding as I would have it is that no, Matthew chapter 24 verses 30 and 31 does not refer to the catching away of the church. I believe that happens a considerable time, some seven years before this. What this refers to is the gathering of the remaining of God's elect those who have survived the great tribulation at the very end, at the glorious return of Jesus. So I would make a distinction between what we see there in Matthew chapter 24 and what we see at the very end of the age. Uh, That's the simplest way that I would explain it there for you. Fernando, thank you for that question. Kate asks, uh, when Paul says the greedy, the swindlers, the homosexuals will not inherit the kingdom of heaven, Does this mean they will go to hell? Meaning, is the kingdom of heaven the same as heaven, or is heaven's kingdom here on earth among the believers and among the righteous? Uh, Kate, I I would put it to you this way. Yes, to say that they will not inherit the kingdom of heaven means that they go to not heaven, which we sometimes call hell the lake of fire, Gehenna. The the Bible says that that is the destiny of those who reject Jesus Christ and his saving work. So to not go to heaven is to go to not heaven, that is to hell, yes. Now, you almost ask a separate question there, Katie, about the kingdom of heaven, about being here on earth among believers, the righteous. Well, look, I, I believe that heaven and earth are joined at the and I don't think there's a contradiction between them. I think there's the heaven where God dwells, and then there's the new earth as well. And the, the, at the very end of the book of Revelation, the new Jerusalem, God's heavenly city, descends down to the earth. And I just believe that there's free concourse, there's free travel, whatever you want to call it, between earth and heaven. And, and so I wouldn't limit the realm of the redeemed in eternity future to just a celestial city in the sky, heaven, nor would I restrict them to a renewed earth. I think that there's free concourse, even as we would suspect, at least in some terms, that angelic beings have free concourse or travel between the heavenly and the earthly right now. I believe that'll be the destiny of believers. So, I think in some sense, Katie, you're kind of asking two questions. Yes, uh, to not be in God's heaven, so to speak, is to uh, go to hell. But secondly, the end of the book of Revelation indicates that there will be this joining of heaven and earth. And and, um, 
it's it, it's a it's a unifying idea there of heaven and earth coming together. I hope that makes some sense to you, Kate. Sometimes I don't know if I explain things well enough. Uh, next question comes from Nicole, who asks, I noticed you referenced the book of Enoch during one of your commentaries. And I've heard that the book of Jude references it as well. What's your opinion of the book? Is it merely to be used as a historical reference? Well, Nicole, pretty much, yes. Um, Christians shouldn't be afraid of the book of Enoch. There, there's a few questions at play here. First of all, what we have today is the book of Enoch. I'm looking at my shelves here. You know, this question comes up a fair amount that I really should keep it within reach, but I don't. I, I forget about it until the next time. Uh, but uh, there's some question as to, is what we have today as the book of Enoch, is it the same or virtually the same as what they had in Old Testament times uh, or in, you know, in, in the ancient world is the book of Enoch? We don't know what additions, what uh, deletions there might have been from it, but assuming that it's substantially the same, we would still regard it as an interesting book, uh, as a helpful book, just not inspired scripture. And so we're free to make that determination, to say something can be good, something can be helpful, uh, but it's not necessarily at all the inspired scripture of God. It doesn't share in that unique description that Paul used in Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, where he talks about all Scripture is inspired by God and is helpful. It's God-breathed, and that is unique to what we call the Bible itself, both in the Hebrew Scriptures and in the Greek Scriptures. So, I hope that's helpful for you there, Nicole. Um, Nicole, I would just say, if you want to read the book of Enoch, read the book of Enoch. Go for it. Knock yourself out. Just realize it's interesting, it's historical, there may be some value to it, but it's not on par with the scriptures at all. Adele asks, will overweight Christians go to heaven? Is gluttony truly a sin? Well, Adele, um, I would just say this, that uh, it, it's entirely possible for a person to be overweight without necessarily being a glutton. And th there are some people who are terrible gluttons, uh, but because of their metabolism or whatever, they have a pretty thin appearance. So gluttony can't be directly measured by a person's body mass index or the figure that appears on the scale. Obviously, there's often some correlation between that, but it's not an absolute correlation. So I, I would not phrase it at all, uh, overweight Christians, can they go to heaven? But um, Adele, gluttony is certainly a sin. And you know what difference of gluttony? Where food idolatry is becoming more and more of a thing. You know, we, we talk about people being foodies. And, and Paul mentions in one of his letters, I think it's in Titus, of people who are under the judgment, the condemnation of God. And he talks about those whose God is their belly. And it's like, this is, um, th this is just what they, uh, what they live for. And we, we just have to say that um, this, this is not good. This is not healthy. Th this is not good for anybody in that situation. And so, um, no, we need to be very careful with this. We need to be very advised with the fact that um, gluttony 
is one of those sins that often goes under the radar. But I don't have any doubt, any doubt, that there's going to be some people in hell because they made idols out of the food they eat. Now, you, you could say of all the different kinds of idolatry, would you rather somebody is uh, makes a bottle of alcohol their idol or a, a plate of ravioli their idol? You know, I'm just using some extremes here. Well, it'd probably be better that they made a plate of ravioli their idol, uh, but they're both idols, and God wants to take away our idols, and God wants us to live in the light of his truth and in the light of his goodness. So, yeah, Adele, that, that's the best way that, that, that I would say it. You know, um, gluttony is an interesting sin in that you know, you could say that two people could have similar eating habits, and for one of them, it's gluttony, and for one of them, it's not. It's one of those that's very much conditioned on the heart, the place food holds in the heart. And uh, that's hard to judge from the outside, isn't it? But it's real when it has this dominating presence. Okay, let me go on to the next question here from Susan. Uh, Susan asks... Um, Hi, Pastor David. What strategies do you suggest someone to overcome resentment? I struggle with this. The Bible says I wouldn't be forgiven if I don't forgive, so I worry about this very much. Susan, God bless your sensitive conscience on this matter. And I mean that sincerely. There are Christians who live steeped in resentment and the problem is, it doesn't seem to bother them at all. And that's bad news. Um, if we're living in resentment, sometimes people call that bitterness. You, you could say that both of them are forms of hatred. Uh, when, we, when we live that way, it's bad. It's an acid that eats away at our own soul. So Susan, let me just say to you first, God bless you for your sensitivity to this sin. But I, I would just say this, Susan, the most practical thing that you can do is pray for the people that you have resentment towards or the people that you struggle with resentment towards. Pray for them. And, and pray um, not just, uh, you know, those imprecatory prayers, Lord, get them, uh, but pray for their blessing. Now, Susan, I would say this too. It's also totally good and appropriate for you to pray. Let, let's say someone's harmed you in some way and um, you're dealing with the resentment, you're dealing with forgiveness, you're dealing with all that. And, and let's say you're making okay progress. It, it's totally okay for you to pray, Lord, shut that person down so that they don't do that to anybody else. It, that's, a, that's a fine prayer for you to pray. But in regard to your own heart standing with them, you should pray. You could pray. Uh, just very simply, very plainly, Lord, uh, would you please bless them? Uh, bless their family. Bless their walk with you. Um, bring them closer to Jesus every day. And, and those simple prayers of praying for them. I, I find often praying for people, at least in my experience, has been a way that I've been able to deal with resentment towards them. And God kind of uses that as a healing balm in their life. Um, 
even though it's valid to pray, Lord, don't allow them to hurt other people the way that they've hurt me. That's that's a fine prayer to pray as well. Okay, next question comes from Yazil, who says, a good day when Moses intercedes for the people in Numbers chapter 14, and when Hezekiah prays for God to extend his life, it seems that humans are making God change his mind. Can you explain? Well, Jaziel, wow, you, you bring up a couple examples that are fantastic. And I love talking about those, those passages because what that communicates to us, Jaziel, is that God wants us to understand that prayer really matters. That we just don't pray as some kind of um, merely a self-improvement exercise. Um, you know, as if we think, well, I don't pray to change God, I pray to change me. And, and look, it's fine to, to have the transforming power of God work in your life as you pray. Praise the Lord for that. But friends, there's a sense in which prayer moves the hand of God. And God presents those situations speaking to us in the manner of men. We don't believe that God changed his mind. God had his eternal purpose set all the time. But the closest analogy that we can come to that in human speaking is to say that God changed his mind. Um, and people object, well, why didn't God use other wording that's more precise? Listen, God speaks to us in the manner of men. How else could he speak to us? There's no other way that God can speak to us. We're men, we're women. How else can he speak to us? And so even though it doesn't catch the dynamic exactly, precisely, it gives us an indication of God's heart and what's happening. The whole point in those passages is to show that God responds to prayer. And we need to pray like this, Jazil. We need to pray believing that heaven and earth, or maybe I should say heaven and hell, um, eternal destinies, light and darkness, bondage or freedom, we should pray as if they depend upon our prayer. Now, look, we understand that God's in charge of all, and, and his will is going to be worked out perfectly. God does not want us to pray in a detached, fatalistic sense, but rather to pray with um, passionate hearts, seeking to connect with God's heart and to see his will be done. Let's remember that as well, Jezreel, that um, our prayers are not made with the purpose of accomplishing our will and to get God to do our will but to accomplish and to further God's will. And in some unexplainable way, God draws us, his people, into partnership with him on those things. So, Jaziel, I hope that's helpful for you. Um, let me go to the next question now from Margaret, who asks, why does God punish Cain, and yet there was no law that said, do not kill? The law came with Moses. How was he to know or to be held to commandments before God gave them to us? Well, Margaret, that's a great question. I, I, I appreciate that question. Here, this is just the simple way to say it. God has written on the human conscience that some things were wrong. And Cain knew that what he did was wrong. His own conscience testified against him. Please remember, Margaret, that there's three uh, main ways that God reveals himself to humanity. He reveals himself to humanity in creation. The heaven declared the glory of God and the, the earth is his handiwork, okay? Through creation, God reveals himself. 
Through conscience, God reveals himself. Not perfectly, and neither would we say that revelation or that uh, creation is a perfect revelation of God. They're both good. They're both, and God revealed the wrongness of murder to Cain through um, conscience. Then, of course, the third and the greatest form of revelation God has given to humanity is His Word. That surpasses everything. Uh, his Word is sure. His Word, in the wonderful words of Psalm 119, His Word is settled in heaven. You know, friends, sometimes I spend a little bit of time on Twitter and I read what people are talking about on there. Sometimes it feels, oh my, uh, God's word isn't settled on Twitter, isn't it? Oh, the, uh, it's not inspired. It's not inerrant. It's this, it's that. It's full of mistakes. Oh, it's just a joke. It, it seems that on Twitter, God's word isn't settled. I don't care. It's settled in heaven, according to Psalm 119. If God's word is settled in heaven, that's good enough for me. Okay, now, we know that Cain's conscience convicted him and told him that what he did was wrong. We know this because he tried to hide what he did. When God confronted him, he did not say, yeah, I killed my brother. What's the big deal? What, was that wrong? Cain didn't say that. He knew that he had done wrong because conscience testified against him. And if you remember as well, God even gained, gave Cain a warning before, uh, saying that sin is crouching at the door, ready to pounce upon you. God warned Cain about it, but he disregarded God's warnings and did what he wanted to do anyway. So I hope that's helpful for you, Margaret. That's a great question. God spoke through conscience. Uh, Shell, I guess is the name there. Say, why are Abel and Cain not in Adam's genealogy? Well, Shell, let me see if I can answer this as simply as I can. The genealogies you're mentioning, the ones found in Chronicles, uh, the ones found in Luke, the ones found perhaps in Matthew as well, those genealogies are for the lineage of the Messiah. And the Messiah's line did not pass through Cain, it certainly did not pass through Abel, but it passed through the third son of Adam and Eve, uh, Seth. So that, that's just simply why. Those are recording the messianic line, not all the descendants of Adam and Eve. Let me add one more thing here, something that a lot of people uh, forget. In Genesis, oh, good heavens, is Genesis chapter 5 perhaps, maybe chapter 4, but Genesis chapter 4 or 5, it says very plainly, that Adam and Eve had many other sons and daughters. The only ones that are mentioned were Cain, and then Abel, of course, who was murdered by Cain, and then Seth. But there were many other sons and daughters born to Adam and Eve so that the earth could multiply and that the population could expand over the earth. So, Shell, the, the whole reason for that is because the genealogies record the messianic line and that messianic line is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Uh, Anine asks, uh, is it a sin to take medication if you're truly trusting God for healing? Um, Anine, no, it's not a sin to take medication if you're truly trusting God for healing. Absolutely. There's several occasions in the Bible 
where it describes the use of some kind of medical substance, uh, some kind of medicinal poultice or lotion or herb or oil or whatever. Matter of fact, uh, when it says in James, let him call, uh, let him be anointed with oil and call for the elders, there's some Greek commentators, I think A.T. Robertson is among them, who say that this refers to a medicinal application of oil. And really what the idea there is that people should get the best medical treatment they could and have the elders pray for them. So, uh, Annie, there's nothing contradictory, or Anine, there's nothing contradictory between taking medicine and trusting God. Uh, just trust in God primarily as the great physician, the, the one who... Um, is the healer of all. And God can use many different ways. He can use medical technology. He can use the skill of doctors and nurses and other medical personnel, uh, or he can heal supernaturally. Uh, But God uses many different means. Don't ever forget that the man who wrote most of the New Testament, by word count, no one wrote more of the New Testament than Luke, the author of Luke and Acts. And that man, by profession was a physician. He was a doctor. So, God seemed to have his hand upon him. All right, next question comes from Diz, who asks, um, Hi, Pastor, did Jacob physically wrestle with God himself? How was that possible? Okay, well, Diz, I would just say it like this, that we find several instances in the Old Testament where God appears to people in some kind of human form. And what we understand from that is that there were times when God, okay, we we all understand, God can manifest himself in a human form. God can do that. He did that through the life of Jesus Christ. When Jesus was born as a baby in Bethlehem and grew up as a as a boy, and then as a young man, and then as a full-grown man, and uh, when he launched his ministry and he was 30 years old, and when he died when he was 33, through all those things, we know, we understand that God can display himself in a human form. Well, it seems that on a special and temporary, and if I can combine special and add to it unique, few situations in the Old Testament, there were times when God appeared in a human form. And what we would do is we would regard that as a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. This isn't God the Father, because the Bible says that no man has seen God the Father. This isn't God the Holy Spirit, because we understand that the very nature of spirit is to be immaterial, not material. But God the Son would later, in sort of a standing way, add humanity to his deity. So there were times when temporarily, so to speak, the Lord would add humanity to his deity, uh, at least in a temporary sense, and appears man. That's with whom Jacob wrestled, because it says very specifically there, it is in that text, that uh, Jacob spoke of seeing the face of the Lord, of Yahweh, of interacting with him in that occasion. So that's just simply what we have, Diz. We have a what we call a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. That's who appeared to Abraham uh, when the two angelic beings went off to Sodom. Uh, that's who um, appeared to the mother and father 
of Samson. That's who appeared to Gideon. And so we have several of these appearances throughout the Old Testament. And the one you're mentioning there of Jacob wrestling with the man or a man, uh, that was a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. Um, oh, and how is it possible? Well, God was holding back. <laughs> Obviously, look, at any moment, God could have just defeated. What God was doing was teaching Jacob and making him expend himself uh, in the most complete way possible so that he would have nothing left in himself to trust in and he could only trust in God. Our next question comes from Jan, who asks, can you explain how helpful it is to fast in faith? Well, Jan, fasting is an important and often neglected part of the Christian life. I'm going to look on the shelf behind me and see if I have one of my father-in-law's books. Um, I don't have one handy. I think I probably gave that copy away. Oh, wait. Here it is. Hold on. Here's the book written by my father-in-law, Nils and Gunnel. I don't know if you're watching, but if you are, God bless you. Uh, see you soon. Um, my father-in-law wrote this book, Dedication Through Fasting and Prayer. You can get it on Amazon. And uh, this is a great little book on fasting because there's not much written on fasting. And uh, I think you'll appreciate my father-in-law's perspective because he's a man who's made fasting a regular practice of his life for decades and, um, Jan, there are many benefits to fasting. Now, people are finding out all the time the, um, the nutritional and the physiological and the weight loss aspects of fasting all the time. That's great. But there's a spiritual dynamic to learning how one of the things, this is not the only benefit fasting spiritually, but one of the things is simply learning how to say no to your flesh. Friends, that's a very helpful thing. We don't want, we don't need the flesh to be in charge of things. There's a very real and concerted place for being able to say no to the flesh. And dear believer, if you can never say no to your flesh, then how far can you go on? How far can you advance in your walk with God? So fasting is a very practical way to say no to the flesh. It's a way to prioritize seeking God uh, it's a way to demonstrate our passion, our alignment with the purpose of God, many spiritual benefits to fasting. Again, I recommend that you go on Amazon and look up uh, this from my father-in-law, Nils Bergstrom. Okay, uh, Asia asks, uh, praise God, Pastor, why do we have two different genealogies of Jesus starting from the sons of David? There's differences between some of the names. Well, Asia, basically, just to say this, that one set of genealogies follows the line through Mary, and the other genealogy follows the line through Joseph, the adoptive father of Jesus. And uh, look, Asia, I'll be honest with you, I get it mixed up. You can look at my commentary and just see which is which. But um, you look at the, the one in Matthew and the one in Luke, and you can compare them. And that's what we have. That's the parting of the line after David, is the line goes through, um, culminating in Mary and one in Joseph. One establishes sort of the legal line of Jesus, that's through Joseph. The other one establishes genetic line through Mary. 
And there's a purpose of God in both of those. Uh, the next question comes from Grace and Truth, who asks, Hi, Pastor David, is the tithe system still in continuation today? All right, Grace and Truth, I'm going to answer the question just as you've asked it there. You say the tithe system. I'm going to say no. The tithe system is not still in continuation today, but hold on. I would say this, the tithe principle is still in continuation today. Look, let's face it, we don't have an Old Testament economy. We, we, we don't have the kind of economy that's described in the Old Testament when it talks about the, uh, the giving and the, and the using of the tithe and all of that. So, so no, that system is no longer in place. But the principle... I put it to you this way. In Corinthians, Paul says that the giving of a believer should be proportional. He says, as one has been blessed, so he should give. In other words, the more you've been blessed, the more you should give. So, if the giving of a believer should be proportional, according to New Testament, then what proportion? And I would just say this, the tithe is... 10% is a good goal. I say that and some people freak out. I understand why they would freak out. They would say, um, oh man, uh, how do I, um, uh, how can I give 10% to God? You know, we're barely getting by. We don't have any money. Then this is what I would say. That really, Okay, listen, this is what I'd say. I'd say, why don't you start by giving 1% to God, but give 1% of your income to God but take it off the top. That's the first thing you do. You prioritize that. You honor the Lord first. Let's just say with 1%. Dedicate that unto the Lord and then see what God does. Maybe God will bless. Uh, often God will. And, and God will continue to bless and you'll be able to give more. If you can't start with 10%, start with some proportion. So again, grace and truth, I would just say this. The system of the tithe is no longer a place but the principle of the tithe, proportional giving, I think that is still very much in place. It's been the practice of my wife and I for the years of our marriage, and uh, we feel God's blessing is upon us and upon our, you know, financial life or whatever. Uh, okay, um, next one is from Bible Treasures and Reviews with Bev, who asks, uh, Pastor Guza, can you elaborate on the difference between belief and faith? Well, Bev, um, let me just say, I, there, there's really no difference. Um, the ancient Greek word, again, to my understanding, that's often translated belief and faith, they both have the same root. And, and so, practically speaking, there's really not much difference. Now, the way I like to explain biblical faith, biblical belief is this, and this comes from the writings of a man named Kenneth Wiest, who was a very practical and helpful Greek scholar for laymen. And Kenneth Wiest described it like this. He said that uh, biblical faith in the New Testament, that the word means this, to trust in, to rely on, and to cling to. When we hear the word faith or belief today, we often just uh, equate it with um, uh, intellectual agreement. But biblical faith is much, much more than that. It's to trust in, to rely on, and to cling to. And uh, you could express that either as belief or faith in a biblical sense. Then, 
And I'm taking it this is our last question because it's uh, just about one o'clock. I'm going to end with this. Um, Umet asks, which verses should I read to ask for marriage? Um, all right, Umet. I don't exactly understand your question there. I'm going to be honest. To ask for marriage? Um, here's a great verse. Oh, where, where did I write that down? Hold on for a minute. Let me look this up. Um, hold on. Oh, I can't find that particular verse. Oh, wait, no, here it is, I think. Um, oh, I can't really find it. Okay, it's a, it's a verse from the Psalms. It's going to sound familiar to y'all. And I never heard this applied as a marriage verse before. Um, oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. So when we were at family camp last week, the morning speaker, uh, Bob Lapine, who, wonderful man, and, and, and he spoke a lot about uh, marriage and family and such. And, and he said that that's a great marriage verse. And my wife and I were talking about it later and we said, you know, we, we never used that verse in our marriage, but it was true of our marriage. That's one of the main reasons why we got married. We just had this sense that we both spoke, but it was also unspoken between us. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. We knew that we could magnify the Lord together and that we could exalt his name together. And that's a great marriage verse. That's what it means to be married in, a, in an ideal Christian marriage. Magnify the Lord with me. And let us exalt his name together. That's one thing. But Uma, if you want verses that will be helpful in marriage, I would just say this. Go through the New Testament and look for all the uses of one another. And take those one another verses. Uh, forgive one another. Encourage one another. Admonish one another. Care for one another. Love one another. Take all those one another verses and apply them to marriage. I think that that's a marvelous, marvelous way to live the Christian life. Okay, folks, we're going to wrap it up for today. Thank you so much for joining me. Before we leave, I got an announcement, a big announcement here. Um, just this last week, so since our last Q&A program, I have submitted to Thomas Nelson Publishers uh, my content for an Enduring Word Study Bible. That'll be published in a year and a half or so from now. And so I'd appreciate your prayers. Um, I think that the Enduring Word Study Bible, that'd be a study Bible with my commentary in it, uh, you know, as much as can be fitted into a study Bible. I think it'll be a blessing for a lot of people. I hope so, but we'll find out. We'll see how it does at the time. But I just want to publicly praise the Lord for um, working through all that material and uh, with God's help meeting the deadlines, and uh, now it's on to the next thing largely out of my hands. So praise the Lord for that, and I appreciate it if you would pray for that project as it goes forward. Thank you so much. God bless you, and hope to join you again next week. Again, if everything goes well, you'll be joining us from Sweden, and uh, we look forward to that. God bless you. Uh, talk to you later. Bye-bye. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, 
please visit EnduringWord.com.